Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. It is equal pay day, and it's about time, damn it. We were just talking about that in here. We were literally just talking about that. That's so funny. I know. we got to celebrate it. I can't believe we're still talking about we need to get there. We've been talking about that for a long time. Hey, hello, everybody. Here we go on a Tuesday, a Tuesday, April 2nd. It is the Bill Press Show, April 2nd, 2019. So good to see you today. I hope you survived uh, April Fool's Day. Man, I got to tell you, it was all around us. I even uh, went to Alexa last night to play some music, and Alexa started out by telling an April Fool's joke. I mean, Jesus, these machines, they've taken over. You can't run it, from it. Even the, <laughs> even the bots know it's uh, it was April Fool's Day. Uh, here we are, the Bill Press Show, starting out in Washington, D.C., jumping out all across this land of ours to pop up wherever you are, online, on the radio, and on television, to join you with our roundup of the news of the day. And, yes, Donald Trump doubling down on uh, the two very, very dumb moves we'll talk about. One of them, he says, he's going to close the entire border. Think what that's going to do to the U.S. economy. Uh, farmers hurt most of all, just like farmers have been hurt by his tariffs. And he's going to, of course, stick to his plan. So already done it to cut off all aid to El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, making conditions there worse and thereby uh, prompting more people, even more people, to flee and come up to the border, which perversely is maybe what Donald Trump wants. So he can really create a crisis and then about it. Here we go, folks. We'll tell you what's going on. You tell us what it means to you. At BP Show. Send us your comments on Twitter. At BP Show. Lots coming up, but first. This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. As you mentioned, Bill, yes, yes. indeed, today is Equal Pay Day, <laughs> which means hopefully you'll be seeing lots of people wearing red. That is the outfit of the day. You're supposed to be wearing red to show solid. Notice I'm wearing red. Notice yeah, I'm wearing nobody red. Uh, told me. Yeah, well, 
It's it's all about equal pay for women because women still yes. make about 80 cents on the dollar that men make in the workplace. And so even Nancy Pelosi talked about it yesterday. So you're going to see a lot of people out there wearing red for equal pay day. Pretty cool, right? Good. It's. I mean, it's not cool that no, we still right, have this problem, right, but, but it's great that we can sort of uh, address it in a, in a pretty visible way here. Uh, so I mentioned that the Rolling Stones were canceling yeah, their yeah, tour. Yeah, Well, we now know for why. good reason. Yeah, yeah, it turns out Mick Jagger is having heart surgery. He is having surgery to replace a, a damaged heart valve. It's happening on Friday. Now their big tour, their highly anticipated tour, was supposed to kick off in like two weeks. And so they obviously can't do it because he's having heart surgery. So he's having surgery on Friday. Mm-hmm. He's going to be uh, recuperating. And then he's going to come back and continue to do the tour. They're going to reschedule the dates. They're going to do a lot of that stuff and make up all the best concerts. Uh, they expect it to be a, a total recovery. Yeah. Total recovery yeah. For I mean, all right. May he live on and perform on. Amen. Yeah, go for it. How you feeling? You feeling a little stressed? No. You feel no stress? No. Well, there is a new survey from WalletHub that takes a look at which states are the most stressed out. And they look at a bunch of different factors. There's work-related stress, money-related stress, family-related stress, and health and safety-related stress. You put all that together, and the most... You're a mess. Stress. (laughs) You're a stressy mess. What is the most stressed state in America? Uh, New York. New York. Not even close. Really? Number one, Louisiana. Louisiana. A lot of this has to do with money and job and health and safety. Uh, They go down the list. A lot of them are southern states. Number two, Mississippi. Number three, Arkansas. Number four, Kentucky. Number five, West Virginia. You know why I'm in Louisiana? Uh, Great piece um, in the New Yorker this week. They're losing land. Yeah. Fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're going to be, Louisiana's going to be underwater in 10 years. I mean, big Big parishes. Gone. Disappeared. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, you like them avocados? (laughs) Get used to it. You're not going to have any anymore once Donald Trump closes the border. We're going to be an avocado-free zone. What a dumb thing to do. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? Great to see you today. Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, joining you everywhere in this great country of ours, everywhere around the globe, online, on the radio, on television. Thanks for being with us. Lots to talk about today. Lots you're going to want to comment on, and uh, the news just keeps rolling on and some of the idiocies coming out of the Trump White House, a whole new issue today we learned about yesterday, which is that, according to a whistleblower, we'll tell you more about this too, at least 25 people in top jobs in the Trump White House were turned down for a security clearance by the FBI because they don't belong in the White House. They got some problems that would prevent anybody else from working in the White House And in every single one of those cases, Donald Trump overruled the FBI, overruled our national security people and said, give them a pass, remember, Uh, including his daughter and son-in-law. So much to talk about, so little time. We'll jump right into it. And again, as we join you 
online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. We join you on the radio statewide in Indiana and in Chicago and all around Chicago on the great WCPT, the powerful progressive voice of Chicago. And looking at you on television nationwide, coast to coast on the one and only Free Speech TV, America's only full-time 24-7 progressive TV cable channel. Yeah, where do we start? We start with let's start with what today is. Recognize it. It is Equal Pay Day. Um, there'll be lots of events today, and members of Congress speaking out about it, and others to again recognize the fact that women today still do not get equal pay for equal work. They still get only about eighty cents on the dollar compared to what a man gets for the same job. It is uh, unacceptable. It is long time past, a long past time to change that. And we've got to keep the pressure on until we re- until we achieve equality in pay. Uh, Lily Ledbetter made it easier. The act that Donald um, Barack Obama's very first act that he signed into law uh, in 2009 made it easier uh, for women who do are not paid equal pay for equal work to sue their employer. Gives them more time to do that, more opportunity to do that, but still the basic pay. Uh, hasn't reached equality yet, believe it or not. And also, another big day today in Chicago, it is Election Day, the runoff for mayor. Um, Don't forget, get out and vote, you as Chicagoans, today for your new mayor. Um, Great choice, two great candidates. Tony Preckwinkle is the uh, head of the Democratic Party in Cook County. She is also the president of the Cook County Board, uh, and her, uh, she's up against Laurie Lightfoot. Laurie Lightfoot, who has been a guest here uh, on our show, uh, here in studio with us in Washington, former chair, lawyer, former prosecutor, former chair of the Chicago Police Board, two outstanding candidates, two outstanding women. Chicago can't get, go wrong, as far as I'm concerned. Can't go wrong. Chicago's going to have a great new mayor, a great and and Chicago's first African American woman mayor making history, whichever way Chicago goes today. But please get out and vote, and um, congratulations for already for choosing two such outstanding front runners as your nominees for mayor or candidates for mayor. Yeah, let's talk about that security clearance. This is unbelievable. So here's what happened, <clears throat> and God bless her. Her name is uh, Tricia Newbold. Uh, she works at the White House. She is a national security in the National Security Personnel Office. Uh, she's been there 18 years, so under Republican and Democratic presidents. Uh, and her job is to handle these requests for um, people getting jobs in the White House to make sure that they have the right credentials and the right background to serve in the White House, where certainly we would want only people with a top security clearance to be in in those kind of meetings and dealing with those kinds of reports and seeing those kinds of papers and overhearing those kinds of discussions at the very pinnacle uh, of our government. Well, according to Tricia Newbold in testimony that she gave to the behind closed doors, uh, to the leadership of the House Oversight Committee, headed by Congressman Elijah Cummings, of course, from Baltimore. Uh, she said that under the, in the Trump administration, 
there were at least 25, 25 top staffers who were rejected by their office and the FBI for a security clearance for a variety of reasons. Uh, some of them because uh, she doesn't identify which ones had which problems, but there were things like uh, co financial conflicts of interest, foreign entanglements, business deals with foreign governments, uh, matters of personal conduct, perhaps drug use. Uh, for all those reasons, they were turned down. And in every single one of those cases, Donald Trump told his chief of staff and told the head of the office, a guy named Carl Klein, who was Trisha Newbold's boss, uh, to ignore the security concerns, ignore the FBI, give them a full clearance. She doesn't name names, but we know some of them. Rob Porter, of course, was one of them who was, remember, that's the first time we heard about this possible problem, was Donald Trump's um, staff secretary, cabinet secretary, handled every single bit of paper that went in front of the president, denied twice a national security clearance. We know that another one was Jared Kushner. We know that another one, we're told, at least reportedly, hasn't been confirmed, that another one was <clears throat> Mrs. Kushner, otherwise known as Ivanka Trump, and another one was, reportedly, John Bolton, the national security advisor. 25 top people in the Trump White House couldn't get a job in any other White House based on problems that, that they had, which would uh, disqualify them for a national security clearance. Elizabeth Warren talked about this yesterday uh, at the We the People conference here in Washington uh, about what a problem this is and what it represents. We woke up this morning to find out that at least 25 people in this administration had been denied security clearances. Yeah, why? Oh, because they had ties to foreign governments, because uh, they had conflicts of interest, because they had financial problems that made them vulnerable. And what does the President of the United States do? Instead of saying, hey, whoa, my responsibility is to watch out for the American people, no. These are friends. These are people with money and with connections. And the answer was, just ram them on through. You know, the Trump administration is a walking, talking, living, breathing threat to national security. And we just have to call it out. Good for her. She's got it. Uh, absolutely sums it up. And, of course, uh, on, on the other hand, Jared Kushner, by the way, if you talk about a walking, talking, living, breathing, conflict of interest, foreign entanglement, entanglements, you were talking about Jared Kushner. Here's a guy who, to bail out his failed company, failing company on, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Manhattan, goes to the Saudis, gets this great big loan to buy this building on Fifth Avenue, and he's, he's in bed up to his, I mean, he's, he's up to his armpits in Saudi money, and now he's in the White House with a national security clearance in charge of working with the Saudis to get a peace deal for the Middle East. I mean, it's just reeks of c conflict and corruption. But Jared Kushner goes on Laura Ingram's show last night, a rare, rare public appearance for him, and says, 
hey, I ain't done nothing wrong. Now, well, I can't comment for the White House's process, but what I can say is that <laughs> over the last two years that I've been here, I've been accused of all different types of things, and uh, all of those things have turned out to be false. Congressman uh, Elijah Cummings, Chairman uh, Cummings, says, of course, um, now we've been told about this problem, and we are going to look into it. If there is an abuse that certainly might threaten national security, it would be legislative and congressional malpractice for us not to deal with them. Right. Uh, one one uh, footnote on this, uh, which uh, I haven't heard anybody else talk about, but um, this did not have to happen. This would not have happened if Donald Trump had followed the original plan laid out by Chris Christie. Remember, and Chris Christie talks about this in his book, Let Me Finish. Remember, he was the first chair of the transition. And Christie put together uh, a briefing book for every single department and agency, what they should do for the first, what their priorities were, what they had to do uh, policy-wise, like for the first three months, the first six months, the first year, laid it all out, briefing books. And then for every position that the president had to appoint, every job, either in the agencies or in the White House, Chris Christie had identified four people for each post and vetted every one of those four so that Donald Trump knew these were people who were clean, who would get a meaning, nothing in the background that would prevent their getting a national security clearance, were qualified for the job and would pass a national security clearance. Four people for each position and Donald Trump, because Jared Kushner, we know the story, did not want Chris Christie around because Chris Christie put his daddy in jail uh, when he was U.S. attorney for New Jersey. Uh, so Jared Kushner gets Donald Trump to fire Chris Christie and all of that work that Christie did. They put Mike Pence in charge. All of those briefing books, all of that vetting, all of that was shredded. Shredded. Paid no attention to it. So then Donald Trump surrounds himself with a bunch of cronies who can't get a national security clearance, who are turned down, and he, using his executive authority, I'm not saying he did anything illegal, but using his executive authority, he basically says, I don't give a rat's ass. These are my friends. These are my cronies. This is my daughter. This is my son-in-law. These are my buddies. I don't care if they uh, they can't pass it. You give them a national security clearance. It really So much for national security. It, yeah, it really <laughs> Out can't. Out the window. It cannot be overstated how there are so many people who got into public service, right, and they recognize that it's a very serious calling and it should be taken seriously and you should be uh, prepared for the job. And you talk about all these different binders, right, like all these <laughs> sort of uh, dumps of information of what could be damaging or how to do this particular job or how to transfer power from one administration to the other. Yeah. Uh, like there's a, there's a, a, in the book, The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis, which I talk about all the time because I think it's one of the most instructive books on how to understand what the Trump administration is doing. There's a moment that he describes where they walk into the White House, Trump and Kushner and everybody, and they're seeing the Obama staffers leave and they're like, where are they going? Yeah. Yeah. They oh, didn't even realize whoa. that they had to staff, you know, the government. And they just didn't care. They were unaware of how to do it and uninterested in how to do it the right way. Right. And one guy, again, uh, I don't mean to be you know, too effusive in my praise of Chris Christie, but one guy who got it, 
and really did the job that had to be done was Chris Christie and all of his work uh, was, went, up in, went, went up in flames. At any rate, we're going to be hearing more about this, and uh, there, there certainly will be some public hearings on this issue. And um, let's just hope that Tricia Newbold, um, <clears throat> her uh, <laughs> whistleblowers, I'm sure, are not treated well at the Trump White House. Uh, I fear what may happen to her in terms of her job security. Uh, talk about dumb things the White House has done. Boy, there are two colossally dumb things that Donald Trump is, is talking about doing at the border. Uh, one he's already done and one he's threatened to do this week. Um, and <laughs> both of these would only ma- are go- only going to make things worse. I mean, it, uh, there are certainly some problems at the border. Donald Trump's shoot-from-the-hip solutions of, number one, closing the border, and number two, cutting off aid to the three countries, um, the so-called Northern Triangle, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, are monumentally dumb moves. Uh, think about, first of all, let's the, the aid to uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. So here's the situation. We know that this is where most of the refu- uh, immigrants, people trying to get into this country, seeking asylum, are coming from. Why? Because of the level of violence uh, and the poor economies and job opportunities, uh, business opportunities in those countries, forcing people to flee because they can't make a living there, or they're not they're, they're not safe, and their families are not safe. So, what the solution is is to improve the conditions in those countries, so not that many people will want to leave. And we've been doing that, and as recently as last week. The DHS, Department of Homeland Security people, and the Border Patrol both said, were bragging about how effective the aid that we're giving to El Salvador is, how much progress that we've made. They, they actually cite the numbers. That two years ago, there were 72,000 people from El Salvador apprehended at the border. Last year, there were 36,000. So they cut the number coming from El Salvador in half. Why? Because with U.S. aid working with that country, they were able to improve the economy. Uh, homicide rates were down. Economic growth was up. And more people said, oh, we can, this is, this is our homeland. We can stay here. So this pro- program was working. According to the Department of Homeland Security, as late as last week, and Donald Trump says, no, these countries are not doing enough. Therefore, therefore we're going to cut off all of their aid. Okay, so explain this to me. These people are so damn dumb. Explain this to me. We want these countries to do more. So we take away the aid we're giving them, which means they won't be able to do more. They won't be able to do as much as they're doing today. We are making the situation worse. Okay, number one. Number two, the same thing with this idea of closing the border absolutely monumentally dumb. There's almost $2 billion, we've talked about this a little bit yesterday, at these ports of entry, we got a whole lot of back and forth between the United States and Mexico. Goods coming up by train and by truck every day, goods going down by train and by truck uh, every day. $2 billion uh, in, in, in commerce, which will, which would come to a screeching halt if he close, if Donald Trump closes the border, which is going to really hurt s- uh, several sectors of the American economy. And it's estimated 
put up to 5 million people out of work. Um, the um, Think Progress did a good little survey of well, what might happen. Again, uh, almost $2 billion in trade across. There's also, remember this, Donald Trump has it floating out there. He brags about it all the time. The U.S.-Mexico-Canadian agreement, the new one, which to replace NAFTA. Right. The main thrust of that is we're going to have a healthy trade between the United States and Mexico and Canada. So even before this... <laughs> New, new trade deal is approved by Congress. Donald Trump is violating the main provision of the trade deal by shutting down the border. Um, again, back to thing progress. American farmers will feel the pain most. Mexico is the top importer of American pork and corn and the third largest importer of soybeans. Whoop, cut off. None of those can go to Mexico under Donald Trump's plan. Most of the U.S. supply of fresh fruits and vegetables comes from Mexico. So the prices of avocados, limes, and berries is going to skyrocket. I saw one um, agricultural expert on the news last night who said, um, in three weeks, there'll be no more avocados. No! No! No guacamole! Bring us back our guacamole. Yeah, I mean... Five million jobs in the U.S. depend on that U.S.-Mexico trade. A hundred billion dollars in car parts. hundred billion dollars in car parts from Mexico used here in, in the auto assembly plants. I mean, again, it is just absolutely mindless. And, and not only that, so not only a, a hugely negative economic impact, but shutting the ports of entry and preventing commerce from taking place between the United States and Mexico is in no way related to the flow of people who are trying to cross here illegally outside of the ports of entry. It doesn't impact them at all. So it's a totally bad, wrong solution to a totally different problem. Uh, and I guess maybe that sort of sums up the uh, Trump administration. At any rate... Um, We'll talk to uh, Alexander Bolton from The Hill a little bit later and get the, the impact. This is it's, it's stuff like this that is driving Republicans in Congress crazy because, you know, publicly none of them have any backbone. They have to defend Donald Trump, but he's but he keeps coming up with these without consulting them ahead of time, announcing these policies that they really can't defend. Big day today, April 2nd, not only equal pay day, April 2nd is the deadline. The deadline today for... Uh, it's the deadline that Congress gave, I should say, the Attorney General for releasing the full Mueller report and all the backup documents. Guess what? Uh, Bill Barr is not going to deliver it today. Uh, but uh, Chairman Jerry Nadler of the House Judiciary Committee uh, has an op-ed in this morning's New York Times where uh, he indicates if Barr does not deliver the full report, uh, they're just, uh, Democrats are not just going to roll over and take no for an answer. Uh, in the New York Times, just reading one paragraph, he says, We, the members of the Judiciary Committee, the House of Representatives, and the entire American public are still waiting to see that report. We will not wait much longer. 
we have the obligation to read the full report, and the Justice Department has an obligation to provide it in its entirety without delay. Bill Barr, Attorney General, says, well, I'll send it over, try to get it to you by the middle of April after I do my, uh, <clears throat> take my blue pencil and edit the parts out that I don't think you should see. Congressman Jamie Raskin from Maryland says, uh, we don't need your help, dude. This attorney general has intercepted the report. He is now saying he is editing the report, whiting it out, shopping parts of it. We don't need him, thank you, as an editor for us. Yes, thank you, goodbye, go away. Um, on the t uh, Moving on, on the uh, 2020 front, yesterday, um, big assembly of uh, Democratic Party activists under the banner of We the People, and almost every one of the 2020 presidential candidates had a chance, had they each had 35 minutes to address the crowd. Uh, Cory Booker, I got a dream. It's time for us to dream again of a nation that every child has a great public school to go to. It's time for us to dream again that every family has health care, that it's universal for all. It's time for us to dream again that work has dignity and all can retire with security. It's time for us to dream again. The man is good in front of a crowd, Julian Castro, uh, telling about <laughs> he was uh, out in Texas. This is amazing. In his car in the drive through window at a Panda Express. Yeah. <clears throat> Makes you question about his choice. Yeah, I do have some questions food. about his food But at any rate, he looks down at his phone, and there's a uh, mm, call from an uh, unknown caller. You know how the phone, sometimes it says unknown caller or blocked? It said private. So if you ever get a call that says private, answer the phone. Yeah. Uh, I did, and I ended up serving two and a half years as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. All right, there he is. Good man. By the way, I never answer my phone if it, if I don't if it's not identified. <laughs> well, you know what? And that's why you haven't been the head of. That's uh, why I'm not in the Trump cabinet. Maybe yeah, exactly. I guess. I, yeah. So maybe <laughs> think I should start. Maybe unknown caller. Yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more likely it's somebody trying to sell you something. Exactly. Right. Uh, there's also a couple of reports on the. Uh, okay, so the first quarter is over. And one. Not the most important, but one important uh, way of distinguishing the candidates is how successful they are raising money. We still can't get away from the money deal in politics. Uh, Pete Buttigieg was the first one out of the box who said in the first quarter he raised $7 million, which is really astounding for somebody <laughs> most people never heard of and still can't pronounce his name, uh, mayor of a fairly small city in the Midwest, um, South Bend, Indiana. At any rate, he raised $7 million out of, um, from 158,550 donors with an average of $36.35. Uh, that was uh, big news yesterday. The news today is Kamala Harris uh, announces that in the first uh, quarter she raised $12 million. One half of it is from people online. People to judge was everybody online a half of it from online people. Uh, average contribution for uh, Kamala Harris, $55. Uh, all of that in the uh, first quarter. So the uh, the race is on. I'm sure, uh, Peter, we're going to be hearing this morning from more people 
reporting how much they've raised. As as we get them, we'll bring them to you throughout the show. Yeah, uh, today I was yeah. just taking a look at, at, at some of this stuff. Nothing, nothing really yet that's dropped this morning, but we'll keep an eye out for sure. Uh, yeah, uh, and the other <laughs> the other thing I saw, which I just this, this is how crazy the things are already. In Slate Magazine, there's a um, commentator uh, I never heard of, uh, Christina Caltanucci, Caltanucci, something I can't pronounce her last name at any rate. Sorry to say. Uh, She is a member of the LGBT community who has written uh, a column in Slate that's getting a little buzz these days saying that uh, Pete Buttigieg, who is a gay man, who is married... Uh, uh, to another man, of course, um, openly gay. She has written a column saying that he is not gay enough because he doesn't act gay and he doesn't look gay. And she said most people, unless they have a really sensitive gaydar, would never guess when they see him and hear him that Pete Buttigieg is gay. Give me a freaking break, okay? Shh. God. Yeah, I don't. But why think do we that eat be... our? We have a ten... We just eat our own, yeah. right? We yeah. should be proud of the fact that there's an openly gay man running for president, and nobody seems to give a damn, right? Right. He's good. It... We look at his ideas. He's got great ideas. He was a good mayor. He's a. He's good on the stump. You know, he'd be yeah. a great candidate for president. He'd make a great president. Okay, that's enough. Don't say he's not gay enough. Yeah, Jesus. no, that's a hot take. That's a really hot take. Yeah, and and like, mm. look, you know, the the, the one of the great this things. Shame on Slate for even putting that crap on. We us. talk about his husband, who is excellent on Twitter, by the way, Chase. Yes. Uh, and and there was a funny moment he tweeted uh, over the weekend about Mm-mm. you know how when you're gay you you come out to your friends and your close uh, uh, family and close friends and things like that. But he says, the thing about that is you're constantly coming out. He said the most recent time that he had to come out is someone asked him why he was kissing the former mayor of South Bend behind uh, backstage after a big event because they didn't realize it. And he was like, yeah, this is my husband. And it's like, you don't need to gatekeep how gay or someone's sexuality. That's insane. That's insane. Well, there were people who said Barack Obama wasn't black enough. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. All right. Great lineup of guests today. Laura Gambino is going to join us from The Guardian a little bit later. Talk uh, all 2020. Alexander Bolton from The Hill, as aforementioned Alexander Bolton, uh, tell us what's going on in uh, the Congress. We start with Laura Baron Lopez from uh, Politico, who's uh, been taking a look at some of the 2020 candidates as well. Uh, and what's up with the DCCC? We'll get into all of that after a quick break here on this uh, Tuesday edition of the Bill Press Show. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Tuesday, April 2nd, hello, 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 program, the Bill Press Show. Thanks for being with us. We start out here in Washington, D.C., pop up with you everywhere you are in this great land of ours on the radio and television and online. Thanks to the support today of the United Steelworkers and their international president, the one and only Leo Girard. The United Steelworkers, North America's largest industrial union representing over 1.2 million active and retired members. Their website, usw.org. Check it out. Say hello with me to Laura Baron Lopez. 
who covers national politics, particularly 2020 house races for Politico, joining us uh, in studio. Hi, Laura. Nice Hi. to see you. Thanks Welcome back. Me. Welcome back. Um, before we move into new races, uh, let's look over our shoulder at the last half hour and the comments coming in, Peter. Yes, indeed. Lots of comments on Twitter at BP show at BP show. Uh, of all the things that we've <laughs> talked about today, uh, the most recent piece that you just mentioned about Pete Buttigieg not, not being, being gay, gay enough, enough uh, really struck a nerve with some people. Walker says, did she, the author, provide a definition of what exactly gay enough means? Um, she also, seems to be saying, you know, if you don't, it's, if you don't immediately when you meet him or see him, think right away, oh, he's gay, yeah, then he's not, not gay, gay enough. enough. Uh, and let's just clear this Ridiculous. up. This is, this is the only word I needed to hear. Our buddy Romaine, who is a, a certified gay man, uh, he How says- How do you know that? He says so, probably. Oh, oh, yeah, he says so. He is a gay man. Uh, he says, uh, the lady who wrote the article for Slate is an idiot. You can't get gayer than running for the highest office in the land as an out gay man who publicly says he has a husband. Yeah, uh, I, that's what I mean. I think that's pretty gay. If, if Romaine says it. I, right. bu I buy right. it. Uh, so find us, find us on Twitter, at BP Show, <laughs> at BP Show. And let me just give you an update on our poll that we ran yesterday. Uh, this is, of course, about Joe did Biden. Did we do a poll? On we did a poll on Joe Biden. Oh, I thought you Biden did a yesterday. poll on whether Pete Buttigieg is gay enough. No, no, no. We haven't done that. <laughs> I don't think we will. No. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but we did do a poll yesterday. Should Joe Biden be disqualified from the 2020 race after the allegations made against him? 14% of you said yes, 75% of you said no, and 11% of you say you are undecided. So uh, that poll is now closed, uh, but you can uh, you can always follow us and tweet at us at BP Show on Twitter. Uh, and you can check my column on that issue in The Hill today, yes. thehill.com. Um, Peter, you might want to make sure we – I guess yeah. we oh, it's send out. that out on It's out there. All right, good. Um, so, Laura, you've been uh, taking a look, particularly um, at um, the 2020 and house races, but mm -hmm. particularly at the in New York State, right? Right. A lot of interesting uh, stuff <laughs> up there in uh, in New York State. Uh, what do you find in terms of so level of support for Kirsten Gillibrand as a presidential candidate? Is she? Uh, oh, um, well, I actually wrote a story about this because she was one of the very few who didn't get any endorsements from her. Um, well, she struggled to get endorsements from New York lawmakers. So uh, part of that may have been because people were speculating whether or not Cuomo was going to jump in, is going to jump in. There was also talk of maybe de Blasio, the mayor of New yeah, York City. Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, she it had been weeks, right, since she had launched her exploratory committee, well, actually months, and she still didn't have uh, any endorsement from a New York lawmaker, and it was very noticeable, and a number of them were, uh, you know, kind of putting her off. She was trying to have meetings with them, lunches with them, um, trying to understand why she couldn't get their endorsement. And it seemed just like came down to the fact that she didn't really have the relationships with them. And they had it with other potential candidates, whether it was with Beto O'Rourke. Two New York lawmakers have already endorsed him. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Sean Patrick Maloney and <laughs> Kathleen Rice. <coughs> and... Um, you know, and others are probably Biden fans and they're waiting for him. Uh, a number of House Democrats and Senate Democrats are uh, 
Biden fans and they really want to see him jump in. So uh, Gillibrand uh, has struggled. She has one House Democrat lawmaker who mm-hmm. did from New York who did uh, finally endorse her, right. uh, Carolyn Maloney. But um, she struggled to get support from within the state. Uh, I remember when uh, Kamala Harris announced Ted Lieu right, mm-hmm. immediately endorsed right. her. And I think she's picked up a couple of, a couple of the has, other California she has, delegations. She has a number. And she also has a number of state wide officials. Right. I think Gavin Newsom yeah. is, is helping mm-hmm. out her campaign. And uh, Katie Hill, a freshman from Southern California, also endorsed her. So she's racked up quite a few. And it was just striking with Gillibrand compared to Harris and also Booker because Booker, right off the bat, locked up all of New Jersey. Uh, he was very effective in doing that and had a, an announcement saying that he had, you know, the senators and the House members. So um, there's there's some there have been interesting races in New York. There almost always are, I think, right? right? Yeah. Uh, one that got a lot of attention was... an. New York 11s? Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, it's Staten where, Island. Where Max Rose, mm-hmm. it used to be for a long time a Republican seat. Max right. Rose now flipped it. Yes. He, he's the freshman Democrat. Democrat. <laughs> I, yeah, he gets a lot of buzz. I'm on his email list for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow. Um, yeah, he does. He is very outspoken. Um, he's a veteran, uh, Army, and uh, he's... This new contingent of freshman Democrats that are in marginal districts that are also veterans, he kind of hangs out with that group Mm -hmm. um, uh, amongst the freshman class. And he's one of the top targets for Republicans heading into 2020 because of the fact that that seat had been red for so long. Right. Uh, And he was able to get in one of the reasons, right, because there was such a um, controversial kind of challenge (laughs) on the Republican side. Right. There was With this Michael Grimm. mm -hmm. Convicted felon, yes, as I recall, a tax for tax evasion, right? Who, uh, who came out and was tr- trying right. to unseat the incumbent, right? yes, yeah. Dan Donovan, yeah. And so Grimm was actually far more the Trumpian candidate. Donovan had actually voted against the incumbent Republican had voted against Trump's tax overhaul bill, right? Um, and a few of the other uh, key Trump policies Donovan had distanced himself from, but uh, Republican leaders in Washington didn't want one of their incumbents taken out in a primary. And so they convinced, you know, Kevin McCarthy, who's now the majority leader, uh, minority leader, excuse me, uh, convinced Trump last cycle to back the incumbent, even though Grimm was probably far more mm-hmm. the attractive candidate to Trump. And Grimm, you've reported, is... Uh, uh, He's eyeing another run. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he hasn't had enough of Congress. Um, and so I went uh, up to Staten Island two weekends ago now, and I sat down with him, and he told me that he's 90% of the way there to running. Um, and that could end up being a really brutal primary, again, for Republicans, because on top of him, you already have uh, Assemblywoman Nicole Maliotakis, who's decided to run, and she has the backing of Representative Elise Stefanik, who has her Elevate pack. The whole point of that pack is to try to get more women Republicans elected, because as mm-hmm. we all know, after last cycle, there's very few of them left. Only 13 left right. in the House. And so, I mean, people like Lindsey Graham have even said Republicans have a woman problem, specifically a suburban woman problem. And um, she's really trying to fix that. Uh and that's what that pack is dedicated to do. And they support the female that's in that race. Um, and then there could be another city, local city councilman that jumps in, Joe Borelli. And he's also very conservative. Uh, so we have to see where national Republicans weigh in, um, whether or not they try to push Grimm out again. 
Um, although on the ground, Joe Borelli, right. I've done several things on CNN with him. I oh, think really? he has the district that's uh, in the city council. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. The last one after that, you're in New Jersey or something, right? He always tells me. He's a, yeah. yeah. He's a big Trump supporter as right. well. Right. No, he's a big um, Trumper. So there's a potential for Trump to maybe weigh in again, which would be unusual in a primary, um, not where there's a sitting incumbent. But Republicans are itching to take out Max Rose. On the ground, the sense that I get, though, is that someone like Grimm would have far more name recognition, obviously, and that... It seems like Staten Islanders aren't that particularly bothered by his um, past, uh, by the fact that he's a convicted felon. Right. Um, how can you cover uh, New York politics, right, without spending most of your time talking about AOC? Right. No, I mean, I've done my she fair share. She does dominate. She does. I mean, even in this race, right, uh, already the Republicans mention her before they mention Max Rose because they think that it's going to be a very effective uh, way of attacking any vulnerable She's Democrats. She's sort of become the new, Na- they, they think, the right. new Nancy Pelosi, right. right? That every, you watch, every district in the country, uh-huh. or well, not everyone, but in many, many districts all across the country, they're going to be running against Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez. Mm-hmm. They are. I mean, already Karen Han- ridiculous. in Georgia, in a competitive Georgia district <clears throat> in 2020, Karen Handel, uh, who is an ex-congresswoman, she got ousted. She Her first ad had Ocasio-Cortez in it. <laughs> what power for a freshman, right? It, it is a lot of power. Um, how, how does she deal with this? I think that um, it's... The sense that I get is that it, it can be somewhat overwhelming. I think, you know, her team also is a lot of people that are new to politics, and so they take it day by day. But um, she clearly handles her office slightly also as an activist, right? I mean, we see her trying to push the envelope as much as possible on Twitter, and that's where they feel that they like to get their news out um, as well. She doesn't... Um, they run their office in an unusual AOA in that they don't release press re- press releases. <laughs> um, you either talk to her staff directly or, or you don't get a hold of them. Um, and so the way she communicates is via Twitter. Um, but, you know, the, where the, she's well, the master. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, the yeah. thing that gets lost in all of the talk about uh, what a powerful presence AOC is mm-hmm. in politics People don't talk enough about the fact that she really knows her stuff. She does. It's not yeah. just a personality thing. No. It's not just a, you know, an inspiring candidate that Democrats can get behind. I mean, she she's running laps around a lot of these people that have been there for generations. Right. She was tapped and asked to teach the other members of Congress how to handle social media. <laughs> she was. Yeah. That's right. She was talking to people who've been in Congress longer than she's been alive. <laughs> Telling them mm-hmm. how to how, handle it. How to handle Twitter, how to yeah, respond, yeah. how to not to respond, how to right. post to Facebook. And no, usually yeah. when she responds, she's right on. I mean, she <laughs> just cuts right through. She's Yeah, she's, she's become a very effective uh, foil. And she, you know, Republicans clearly are agitated and irritated and obsessed about her. Um, and so... Like you said, she has become a new Nancy Pelosi. Now, one thing where she stirred things up by suggesting that if there were some Democrats who were um, not uh, progressive enough, right, mm-hmm. uh, and and didn't support the progressive agenda, that 
she might even support some people to uh, and encourage people to primary them, right? And oppose them in the primary, yeah. Which has led to a big uh, kerfuffle with the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Mm-hmm. It has. Tell us about that. You've, you've so, been reporting on it. Yeah, I have done extensive reporting on it because uh, Acacia Cortez was boosted by the group Justice Democrats. They're the ones that helped handle her entire campaign, and this group is. As you mentioned, their entire uh, M.O. is to primary uh, sitting incumbents, Democratic incumbents, in safe seats. That's Mm -hmm. what Ocasio-Cortez did. She went after Joe Crowley, who was in leadership. Originally, she was supposed to be um, challenging Jose Serrano, also in New York, but then she switched Mm -hmm. districts. Mm -hmm. So this group wants to replicate their success with Ocasio-Cortez and do it again in 2020 with Democrats that they think are either, you know, ideologically far too center or to the right or ones that they just feel like have done really nothing with their time in Congress. And yet they've been there for 10, 20 years and they want more members that are like Ocasio-Cortez rabble rousers. So one of their top targets, their first targets is Henry Cuellar of Texas um, they're trying to recruit uh, a progressive challenger there. They still haven't named one. Um, I reported last year that they, that Justice Democrats and Ocasio-Cortez were kind of eyeing Hakeem Jeffries. That caused a big kerfuffle. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, Particularly now that he's in the leadership. Right. And she denied a portion of it, but not the entirety of the piece, which is why it ran. Um, and from everything I've heard from sources is that there is still a lingering, um, you know, goal amongst Justice Democrats to potentially look at at Jeffries. Uh, So how did the DCCC get involved in this? Well, so what's going on is that, you know, Sherry Bustos is leading the DCCC. She's a very different, she's from Illinois. She's, Mm -hmm. she herself uh, flipped a red district about four cycles ago, I want to say. Right. And um, but she's made it more in uh, a safer and safer seat for her. Uh, she's considered center left. Um, and so she's running it very differently than the previous chairman. And she issued this new guidance out to um, consultants and vendors saying that if you are going to work for a primary challenger to a sitting incumbent, you're not going to have any business with the DTRIP. We're not going to do any business with you. This was kind of an unwritten rule, unspoken, standard practice, assumed, but the fact that she came out so forcefully and said this publicly in guidance has, you know, entirely rocked the progressives. And this was her way of saying that I'm I'm going to defend my incumbents, all of them, whether or not you think they're ideologically pure and, um, and, and and I'm going to put you in check because now she's seen threats from Justice Democrats or even Indivisible who backs occasionally primary challengers. This is so classic. I mean, I dealt with this when I was Democratic chair of California. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, your, your, your inclination is to protect your own people. But that incumbent protection program is one of the big obstacles to getting anything done because you get these old farts in there, you know, who uh, been to, they're only – calling card is they've been there a long time and they have Mm -hmm. a D after their name, right? Right. And um, they're not necessarily good votes, right, on even a Democratic agenda. Uh, And so uh, turnover is pretty healthy, I think, but that (laughs) that gets in the way of turnover. Uh, But to punish people, Mm -hmm. so 
so, so kind of the official, I understand where the officials have to sort of say, well, you know, mm-hmm. we're these, he's our guy, we're sticking with our guy. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to punish people who would dare challenge that incumbent, right. I think is is a wrong, bad move for the D trip, right? Or for the 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 Senate campaign committee, or for the Democratic Party. I mean, mm-hmm. let the primary w- work itself out. I mean, that's the hey, argument. That's yeah. why I supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. <laughs> I just right. thought the Democratic Party needed to wake up, needed mm-hmm. needed a challenge. It wasn't mm-hmm. against Hillary. It was for democracy. It was mm-hmm. for a debate. In the party, so in some of these primaries, damn right, let mm-hmm. somebody challenge some of these old guys, the men or women who've right. been around a long time, right? And maybe get some better votes in there. Yeah, and so that's for a progressive the, agenda. That's the arguments from the progressives. I mean, the arguments also from like members. So, like, what's the Rob- progressive caucus think about this? Well, that's they're really upset about it. I mean, the two leaders, the co-chairs, mm-hmm. Mark Pocan of Wisconsin and Pramila Jayapal of. Um, Washington. Washington. Yeah. yeah. So they met with Bustos last week and they voiced their concerns, their frustrations. They told her, you know, we're already getting calls from donors who are saying that they're not going to donate to the contribute to the DCCC if you guys keep this in place. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they left that meeting. Ro Khanna of California, another congressman who's with the Progressive Caucus, was also in that meeting. And he came out and pretty much just blasted DTRIP after the meeting, saying that progressives are going to fight this until it's reversed. And uh, so far, we haven't seen Bustos uh, move at all an inch. She's standing by um, she's standing by her guidelines that she issued. She's saying, you know, my job is to protect incumbents. Nancy Pelosi backed her up last Friday saying, I support the chairwoman. So did Steny Hoyer and so did Jim Clyburn, the other two top deputies. <clears throat> Mm-hmm. So Bustos right now uh, looks like she's not going to reverse course at all. Progressives are saying that they're not done, though, yet. Uh, I just was talking to Jayapal yesterday evening, and she she said that the conversation is still open, or at least they want it to be, and they're still trying to talk to Bustos to find some kind of compromise because they really don't see why this policy needs to be in place. Uh, you know, the CPC okay. themselves, like, tried to tell Bustos, look, we're not – primary in any yeah, incumbents yeah. that's not rmo <laughs> either but you know this is a chilling effect on a bunch of talented yeah. consultants and vendors yeah to punish people for supporting a candidate who would dare challenge that democratic incumbent i think is uh, is is not a a good policy mm-hmm. um uh i like congresswoman sherry busto she's been a guest here in studio several times uh, she you know there's got to be there's a place for her and there's got to be a place for candidates like her in the Democratic Party. I mean, she she went into southern Illinois right. in a district, a Trump district. I think he carried it by like 20 points. Now she, carried, yeah, now she carries it by about 20 points or But, I mean, so. I think he did. Oh, right. right. He did. Yeah. yeah early on, right? he carried it by a lot. And it's great that she's that she's mm-hmm. there. But mm-hmm. um, but I think this this particular move would be a dampening effect. Uh, finally, i got to ask you before I let you go. Mm-hmm. Um you would think that if Democrats are looking for a strong candidate for 2020, they'd look around among governors. And here you've got Andrew Cuomo, governor, one of the largest states, mm-hmm. the big block of electoral votes. I don't know anybody who was <laughs> thinking that Andrew Cuomo should run for, except maybe he did at one point. Right. Isn't it strange that he's not, he's not even mentioned as a possible candidate? For 2020. I think that there's an oversaturation and so many people are overwhelmed by the sheer amount of candidates that are in there. Um, 
and and I think that that's why Cuomo has been overlooked, you know, up to this point. And I'm not sure he's going to jump in. Ever, it sounds like he's he's let that that I shit pass. But I don't hear any clamor for him to jump in either. No, I don't. I haven't heard any from any of the New York lawmakers. I mean, just other than oh, I'm waiting to see. But they don't sound particularly enthused about the prospect of him. Is he jumping popular in. in New York? Um. I mean, among progressives, obviously not, right? We saw the Nixon <laughs> challenge. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, but he still overwhelmingly won. Uh, yeah. And so I think that he is, yeah. Well, you got a good beat. You're doing a good job. Thanks, Thank Laura. You. Thanks for coming in. You can follow Laura and all of her good friends over at Politico at politico.com. Alexander Bolton from The Hill joins us top of the this next hour. is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Equal pay day. Make it count and let's do it finally. Uh, just equal pay across the board, men and women for the same job. Makes sense. Why haven't we already done it? Hello, everybody. Here we go on a Tuesday, April 2nd, 2019. So good to see you today. Hello, 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 and welcome uh, to the program as we reach out to you coast to coast, all around the globe, in fact, online and coast to coast on radio and on television uh, with all the news of the day, such as it is from here. Big news story today where a whistleblower who works at the White House, at least (laughs) used to, not sure she still has a job today, Uh, telling members of Congress that there were up to 25 people in the White House who were turned down for security, national security clearances. Um, But the president uh, overrode the security office and said, nope, I want them to have a security clearance anyway, uh, raising lots of questions about um, the whole process inside the White House. We'll get into that and a whole lot more this uh, hour. Uh, with our first guest for the hour, Alexander Bolton, uh, covers the, particularly the Senate, um, senior reporter for the Congress for The Hill, the great newspaper, The Hill. Alex, it's always good to see you. Welcome. Hey, Bill, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. And, uh, you know, I always say how much I love The Hill because they run my column <laughs> That's important. on a Tuesday. That's the most and, important thing. And here it is, a column day for me in The Hill, but check it out always at thehill.com. We got lots to get into. Lots you're going to want to talk about. We want to hear from you. Your comments on the news of the day on Twitter at BP Show, and we'll jump in with Alexander Bolton. But first, up to Peter is the full court press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. Where's the beef? That was the tagline for Wendy's years ago when they were selling their fast food burgers. Well, people will be asking the same thing of Burger King because yesterday they announced that they are going to start selling 
Meatless Burgers. No. Meatless Burgers. The Impossible Burger, which is a vegan burger patty, which a lot of people are starting to use now. This has sort of become the sort of industry standard for uh, plant-based meat, Impossible Foods. They're going to start selling a Whopper that has no meat in it. Now, I will point out that they announced this on April Fool's Day. Oh. But they they insist this is absolutely real. In fact, their uh, chief marketing officer, they, they said it's real. And a lot of people are doing this, by the way. I have seen some people start doing this. Uh, their chief marketing officer says that they made Whoppers, sort of their signature burger, and on one side they had the beef patty, on the other they had the Impossible Foods patty, and some people could not tell the difference. I've had some of these, not this, not the Whopper, but I've had some of these plant-based meat, and they've gotten very, very good in recent years. I will say that. Remember when he was head of... Um the Humane Society, Wayne Paselli, Wayne Paselli. Uh, swore by these meatless burgers. Yeah, yeah, and we uh, had he was, he was uh, way a pioneer in that whole stuff. Our he friend insisted uh, it was good, as good as a burger. I'm tell, I gotta tell you, they're really good. Seth Goldman, our friend that uh, yes. honest tea, also honest we had tea. the Beyond yes. Burger, which is right. a plant-based meat that actually bleeds because it's got beet juice in it, so it looks like there's a juicy burger. I had one of those. I have to say, delicious, absolutely delicious. So, am I going to run out and go get a Whopper with fake meat? Probably not. But I sort of feel about the meatless burger the way I feel about the driverless car. Yeah. I don't want anything to do with either one of them. <laughs> All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Well, you know, we talk a lot about marijuana legalization around the country. And while it's important, it's also important to look at the thousands and thousands of people that are locked up for marijuana convictions. Well, that is what the state of California has been doing. There is a new crop of people who could be have their marijuana convictions completely expunged. 54,000 people are up, Ooh, and they wow. may actually get those convictions uh, expunged from their record, which is an important part of all this pot legislation. Absolutely. Good for Gavin Newsom. Get on it, Gavin. This is the Bill Press Show. Doubling down on closing the border, Donald Trump says it makes sense. He's going to do it, even though a lot of American farmers are saying, please, please don't. We need our avocados and we need to sell our corn and pork. What do you say? Hello, everybody. On a Tuesday, April 2nd. Great to see you today. Welcome to the Bill Press Show as we join you coast to coast, in fact, all around the globe, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on um, Free Speech TV nationwide, looking good there in TV land. And it's election day in Chicago, so all of you friends joining us on WCPT, uh, get out there and vote today. You've got two great choices. Uh, Tony Preckwinkle, who is the president, you know this, of course, of the uh, Cook County Board, and Laurie Lightfoot, uh, former head of the Chicago Police Board. Uh, both of them great candidates, historic choice. California's going to, I mean, Chicago will make history today by choosing uh, its first female uh, African-American mayor. Uh, and so it's important that you exercise your right to vote and uh, 
and make your choice for the next mayor of Chicago on this uh, Tuesday, April 2nd. Join me in welcoming to the studio from The Hill, senior reporter Alexander Bolton. Uh, Alex, good to see you. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. So um, I'm a little confused, Mm -hmm. okay, Um, because over the weekend we know that uh, just before the weekend, I guess, President Trump surprised um, a lot of members of Congress Mm -hmm. by saying, well, on Obamacare, we used to be for saying we're going to save some parts Mm -hmm. but get Mm -hmm. rid of the rest. Mm -hmm. No, we're now joining this court case in Texas Mm -hmm. that's brought by some state attorneys general that Mm -hmm. says we're going to get rid of all of Obamacare, Mm -hmm. kill the whole Mm -hmm. thing. Well, then yesterday the president said, well, we're going to have another plan to replace Obamacare but we're going to put it off until after the elections mm-hmm. on 2020. Right, right. So isn't he sort of like contradicting himself? We're going to repeal and replace. And is he really, what is he saying? And, and how, do, how the senators that you've talked to, what do they think about this plan? Well, he, he's been all over the map on this. And uh, it, it, he met with the Senate Republican conference last week yeah, on the t- on that's Tuesday right, he came up to the hill right. and you know no one knew what the meeting was about <laughs> and then he announced it he surprised them all it was an almost like an April Fool's joke but a week early <laughs> yeah he said you guys are going to come up with a health care plan to replace Obamacare in case the courts strike this down and it uh, Chuck Grassley the chairman of the finance committee who has jurisdiction over the issue had no idea this was coming nor did Mitch McConnell nobody knew this was coming and of course this was such a messy battle in 2017 divided the party, wasted a lot of time. The Democrats, of course, campaigned on it in the 2018 midterm elections, took back the House. Republicans have seen this as a losing issue. And so for the president to say, we're going to keep at it, keep at trying to repeal Obamacare, and you guys come up with a replacement, they're like, no, we're not. This is the first we've heard of it. We're we're doing other things. He said, we're going to be known as the party of health care, right? Well, yeah, that's what he said. And then he tweeted... We're going to the, the Republican Party will be known as the Party of Healthcare, and then he you know, spoke to the cameras before the the meeting. He said, "Just you watch, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to be the Party of Healthcare." And so that was news to everyone else in the Republican Party. But he's the leader after all. So, um, and then there was kind of then the the there was pushback from the Hill, and then the administration in the form well, of Mark Short. Do, yeah, um, Mitch McConnell's comment I thought was very instructive, right? He said, so I look forward to seeing the president's plan or something like that, which was like, he, it was almost like he's saying, I don't know what the hell's going on, right? <laughs> oh, good. sorry. So then Mark Short. Oh, then Mark, well, then Mark Short later in the week, and he's he's now you know, with, you know, the vice president's office. He was the former chief uh, liaison to Congress for the White House. He said, okay, the administration's going to be coming out with a plan, and now I think the latest is I talked to Grassley actually uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, last evening. He thinks that he says, says now there's going to be a statement of principles from the White House. So that's not quite a plan. It's not a detailed plan. It's a kind of a statement of principles, and then I think it'll just sit out there. And then as Trump tweeted last night, well, we don't. I don't expect Congress to pass anything before the election. So he kind of took the pressure off. You know, this I, this was I think a flight of fancy that lasted not even a week, but it's pretty much over. I think. Well, is it? But it's not over, because the administration is in court to overrule, overturn the Affordable Care Act. What if the courts rule? Yeah, you're right. The Affordable Care Act is gone. Well, now that, that could was, be appealed to the Supreme Court. 
But the administration is on record, right? They're in court. They didn't pull out of that court case. That's 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 why I say I'm confused because they say they're going to wait until after 2020, but they're in court like today, right? Well, that was the story I wrote yesterday morning, uh, mm-hmm. lead story on the Hill. Republican lawmakers privately hoping that this that this lawsuit fails. I saw that story. A right. bunch of I talked yeah. to a bunch of them. And, you know, they won't say yeah. it publicly because no one wants to cross President Trump. But what they're all what they're saying privately is, if this if this lawsuit uh, succeeds, succeeds, big problem for us. It would be a disaster. Crossing our fingers, it fails. And John Roberts, please, you know, don't don't drop this mess in our laps. Right. And I think Roberts knows that. And I think you because know because they would be left with having killed the Affordable Care Act and having nothing to replace it with and moving into an election year where they're not going to get anything to replace it, right? And the president saying, we'll do this after the elections in 2020. So they would have to go to the American people and say, reelect us and trust us. If you reelect us, we'll come up with a new health plan to replace the one that we killed a year and a half ago. That's a, that's a tough... So. Well, I, the other question is, if the Supreme Court rules all of Obamacare unconstitutional, where does that leave Congress? I mean, what then can Congress actually do to pass a health care law? I think mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it would be I think that'd be pretty difficult. You strike down the the entire law, something that had already been held up as constitutional. You know, how do you possibly provide the subsidies, protect the people with pre-existing conditions if this law is found to be unconstitutional? I think it's I think the court would then have to reverse itself again. So is this a, um, I wouldn't say a trend, but is this the reality that Republicans in Congress have to deal with, that on, on issue after issue, they just get blindsided? They Absol- don't know what the hell's absolutely. going on. Absolutely. And we saw this vividly in December, which wasn't that long ago. Uh, Shahira Knight, who is the chief uh, White House lobbyist on Capitol Hill, she told Senate Republicans in a meeting... <laughs> You know, the Tuesday before Christmas weekend or the Tuesday before Christmas, you need to pass a clean stopgap spending bill. That's the only thing the president will sign, you know, to avoid a shutdown. Then, you know, Vice President Pence, I think, was in the following day on Wednesday. He said, OK, you know, pretty much didn't say it explicitly, but gave them all the impression, that, OK, the president will go ahead and sign this if it's clean, this clean CR. And then, of course, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but the Senate passed this bill to keep the mm-hmm. government open. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everyone left town. We all thought it was done. And yeah. then, you know, the House Freedom Caucus, the most conservative guys in the House, Mark Meadows, et cetera, got on the floor, railed against it. Ann Coulter railed against it. The president did a total U-turn, vetoed the bill, caught everyone by surprise, and we were in a 35-day government shutdown. So those are two major, major decisions one is to shut down the government. The other is to come up with a brand mm-hmm. new health care initiative to replace Obamacare. Both the, both these things done without any consultation with you know Mitch McConnell or the Republicans on Capitol Hill and catching them all by surprise, blindsiding them all. Is um is this is there another example this week with shutting down the border? I, I would imagine also catches them. Caught them by surprise. Yeah, yeah. That uh, you know, I was not. I did not work on that story yesterday. But yeah, that, I think that catches them by surprise. Although he has, I mean, he has been threatening that for oh, a while. Right, right. And you know, I think, you know, just my my gut feeling on it is that people are going to say, "Well, let's see what happens." You know, I think there's some skepticism whether he'll really do it. It's kind of his kind of go-to line when he wants to 
mm-hmm. change the subject. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I, look, the fact is you can't you can't just shut down the border between the U.S. and Mexico. It's impossible. You, I mean, yeah, it uh, can't be done. I, I don't think we have the, the man, manpower or person power but to I, do I, it. There's but, just there's so much traffic also, and commerce and, you know, flow of people. You just can't you can't do it. It's not the president can say he's going to do it. But for it to actually happen, I think I don't I don't believe it would happen. And I think a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill are skeptical that he would actually follow through on it. You touched on something earlier, which I think um, that we've, we see more and more of is that that the Republicans in Congress are caught in this situation where they don't want to publicly um, disagree with the president. And maybe they fear what might happen to them if they yeah. if they did at the same time. He's doing things that they can't really defend, right? So they're sort of caught in the middle. They're just waiting for this all to be over. <laughs> <laughs> They'll wait. Well, there's another 18 months or it's another four years and 18 months. They're just waiting for this to be over. And then they can <laughs> write about it in their memoirs, I think. I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's uncomfortable. I mean, you know, I wish, you know, I think if it was up to them, they would just, you know, Seal the Capitol and not have to talk to anyone until <laughs> no. Trump is out of office, <laughs> or but, only talk to their town hall meetings. And you know they hate yeah. it. They hate, you know, they hate it whenever you 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 go to them with questions. Well, what's your response to this? I mean, they just. I mean, I think their strategy, and I'm talking about you know Republican lawmakers and Senate Republicans in particular. You know, they say I think their their view is okay. Let Trump do his thing. Mm-hmm. We'll do our thing, and kind of you know, yeah. we'll agree on the big picture. Which which is actually a shrink, which is become which is shrinking every day. I mean, tax cuts, but that's already been done. Deregulation, that's already been done. Mostly, like, we'll do our thing, they do their thing. But then, you know, they get all these pesky questions. Well, what do you think right. about this? What do you think about that? What do you think about this? And then it's like, well, no, they you know they think these are stupid ideas, whether it be shutting down the government or rolling out a, a brand new healthcare initiative with zero notice or shutting the you know US Mexico border they all think they're dumb ideas but they can't say it because once they do then they become the targets for attack by the president or by you know the conservative uh, or, you know a media sphere whether it be right. Fox News or, or or Fox Radio or Sean Hannity or well, Ann Coulter well it's one of the one of the things I want to ask you about because I'm a little confused also about what the Senate agenda is if there is one right now i mean you're right. So they did the tax bill. They did deregulations happened um, administratively, particularly at EPA. Um, Nancy Pelosi is mm-hmm. with the leadership of the House. So they've passed two gun safety measures. They passed HR one, the whole campaign finance reform, voting rights reform. So, and they've got they've introduced Medicare for all. They've introduced the big fix for the leadership, the fix for Obamacare. Mm-hmm. So they've clearly got their agenda. Yeah. I don't see an agenda from Mitch McConnell yeah. or Chuck Schumer in the Senate. Is there one? There really isn't an agenda. And what McConnell— Meaning a legislative—I'm talking about you and I, are a legis- to be sure our listeners and viewers understand, a legis- not a political agenda, but a legislative policy agenda. Right? That's what I meant. That's uh, what we're talking about. A legislative yeah. agenda. There yeah. is not a legislative agenda. McConnell, when he's asked about it, you know, his line is— we're in the personnel business, and we're going to focus on confirming judges and confirming executive mm-hmm. branch positions. And what we're going to see later this week, and this is going to play out on the floor a little bit today and also later this week, the Republicans are going to change the, the mm-hmm. rules so that it'll be easier to confirm 
uh, Trump's judges. And what but we're talking they, about. They've confirmed a record number of judges, right? Haven't they? The last well, that was that was, the, that was the line that that Schumer, uh, you know, had on the so, floor yesterday. He said, "Well, oh. you can't you can't be bragging about confirming a record number of Trump judges and then saying in the same oh. breath you need yeah. to change the rules so you can confirm more judges." I mean, if you look at so far this year, I think there've been something like six, uh, six or seven uh, uh, appellate court uh, judges confirmed. But you know, as of last week, no district court judges. McConnell's saving them up, and basically, what the, the rules changes, it's fairly minor. But what it re, what it entails is once you, you know, bring someone up to a final vote, rather than having thirty hours elapsed on the Senate floor, you'd only have two hours elapsed. So they'd be able to churn through a few more. But that's that's really what his focus is in terms of broader agenda. There really isn't anything because there's nothing they there's nothing they can really agree on. If there's anything to to point to, there's some bipartisan work in the Finance Committee. Between uh, Chuck Grassley and the, and the you know, ranking Democrat Ron Wyden of Oregon to lower prescription drug prices, hmm. but I think the stuff they're looking at is pretty modest. I think they had a they had a bill together last year that came out in December that basically would have given HHS more authority to crack down on drug makers that are you know misclassifying their drugs in terms of you know Medicaid reimbursements or something like that. So it's pretty small, but yeah. at least there's 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 little sparks of bipartisanship. But yeah, there's no. There's no, you know, the HR one that Nancy Pelosi passed, the you know, lobbying ethics reform. That's going nowhere. Um, but even, you know, you made the point about Schumer. What's, you know, what's his plan? What's his legislative agenda? You know, he doesn't really have one either. And this is something I wrote about a couple weeks ago. You know, the deficit and tax cuts and tax policy is a major issue in the upcoming election. Of course, you know, you have AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez mm-hmm. putting out her plan, and you have. Kamala Harris talking about her plan, and I mean it's going to be a, Elizabeth Warren. Too. It's going to be yeah. yeah, Elizabeth Warren. It's going to be a big issue, you know. But Schumer's made no effort to try to come up with a Democratic tax plan, even though it's probably the you know one of the most pressing issues because I think there's broad consensus amongst Democrats that they want to roll back the Trump's tax cuts. But Schumer's mm-hmm. really not made any effort to come together with a, a caucus-wide plan or even statement of principles. In contrast to 2012, when there was a clear defining line. Uh, I'm sorry, a clear demarcation. I mean, the the president, President Obama said, you know, roll back the Bush tax cuts on uh, people making more than two hundred fifty thousand. Then Schumer, you know, he mm-hmm. had his plan on those making more than a million, and they settled, I yeah. think, at four hundred thousand in the end. Right. Um, what has been the impact? We see um, Jerry Nadler today as an op-ed in the New York Times saying. Uh, this was a deadline, April 2nd, for release of the Mueller report. Uh-huh. Uh, he knows Barr's not going to do it, so he's saying we're going to do everything we get, can to get the report. Um, so there's been a lot of noise in the House over release of the Mueller report. What's, he, what's been the impact in the Senate? I haven't seen much response, other, except on the part of Lindsey Graham. I mean, you know, in the Senate, you know, I mean, the senators by nature are a little bit more patient. They have six-year terms versus two-year terms. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, there hasn't really been an outcry, but... You know, they've all said the same thing. The report needs to be made public. I mean, that, you know, that's kind of the standard line. So if you ask, even Republicans are saying that. Well, that's what Democrats are saying, and you know, right. Republicans. You know, it hasn't been a huge issue, quite frankly, because this is. I mean, this is really more of a. This is more of a House. No, I get that in, impression. Uh, that's why I wanted to ask because you, the House right. has the subpoena. I mean, the Senate has no recourse, and the, and the Senate Republicans aren't going to subpoena this report. Yeah. I mean, the, here's here's something that was interesting. I mean. The, uh, the you know there was a resolution that passed the House unanimously, something like four twenty to nothing, yes. to uh, uh, you know to, you know calling for the Mueller report to be to be to be made public. The full report, yeah, the full report. I mean, so 
Chuck Schumer brought that resolution to the Senate floor, said, hey, this passed unanimously in the House. Let's do it here in the Senate. Rand Paul came to the floor and blocked it. So, you know, not happening in the Senate. There's the, there's the difference between the, the two but chambers. I mentioned Lindsey Graham. Lindsey, yeah. the, the Senator Graham's uh, response seemed to be, we want now an investigation into how this investigation started or like – some of translated, we we need another special counsel yeah. to investigate the special counsel, right? Uh, yeah. Really? They're going to go down that road? Well, Lindsey Graham's up for re-election. He has his primary. <laughs> right. I mean, let's not forget. This I is... think today today or yesterday, right, he launched his campaign. Maybe, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's what this is all about. You know, Lindsey Graham's approval rating in South Carolina amongst Republicans was pretty low heading into this election cycle. I mean, he has, you know, he has embraced the president as hard as possible. Sure I mean, has. you know, we all sure remember has. his his rant during the Brett Kavanaugh hearing when he was almost, you know, I mean, he was red like a tomato and, yeah. you know, yeah. teeth bared like an angry badger or something <laughs> like that. And, you know, pointed, jabbing his fingers at the Democrats. And, you know, now so this is this is great. And, and look, his numbers, you know, as he's become kind of this, you know, attack dog for Trump in some ways, you know, his numbers have ticked up in the South Carolina primary. And so this is great. This is great Republican primary politics. Now, mm-hmm. you know, what do other people think about, you know, spending time, you know, relitigating this investigation or going back to, you know, looking at the origins of it, investigating the Obama administration to see what, you know, hand they had in it. I mean, John Barrasso, the Senate Republican conference chair, he was on Meet the Press on Sunday and he, you know, he was pressed by Chuck Todd about this on this point. And he said, look, I think we should move on. So really, yeah. yeah. And that, I mean, that's, that's pretty um, – that's notable because, I mean, John Barrasso is a member of the elected leadership. He's not a rebel in any sense. I mean, he's a he's a guy who, you know, he toes the, the party line and, uh, you know, he he supports the – you know, the – I mean, he's he has been at the forefront of, you know, calls to repeal Obamacare for years now. Um, but he said, eh, I think it's time to move beyond this. We have better things to do than to dredge up, you know, this this story that, you know, just really hasn't amounted to anything. Right. I know you and your colleague, um, when a week ago Donald Trump was on his uh, tweet storm against John McCain, tried hard to get some Republican senators to, to react. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was um, an interesting, for, for, to say the least, that several, maybe a dozen of them, half mm-hmm. a dozen, yeah. responded by praising John McCain did not respond by attacking Donald Trump or right. condemning him yeah. for attacking John McCain. Right, right. Well, they don't want to be the next this, target of the tweet storm. I this, mean, that's the, what it comes down to. Right. You know, this is another case of afraid to take on Donald Trump openly, publicly. Yeah, and I think you know, very few people are willing to do it. You know, Mitch McConnell, as I recall, had a tweet saying, or he had a statement saying, "You know, there's not a day that I don't think about my good friend John McCain." Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, but right. that's it. He wouldn't go against the. He wouldn't go after the president. Whereas. You know, Mitt Romney and Johnny Isaacson, they were the only two who who actually criticized the president. I think Isaacson called it deplorable. And I think Romney said, I don't know what's in the president's head for him to do something like that. And I think that, um, you know, Lindsey Graham slowly after, you know, being kind of criticized for his tepid response finally said that this, you know, this hurts the president. But it wasn't, that's not really a criticism. Are you surprised that Mitt Romney hasn't emerged as more of a vocal critic of the president after the things he said during the primary? I think he's, you know, I think he's warming up to it. I mean, you know, he's, he's, you know, he sprinkled his... If anybody's safe, right? 
in Utah. He well, you know, I mean, of 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 all the states that uh, you know Trump won, or of all I'll put it this way, of all like kind of the the solid Republican states, his performance was worse, in, the worst in in Utah. And mm-hmm. if you look at the Utah Republican primary from you know 2016, yeah. he got smoked, he mm-hmm. got destroyed. And actually, uh, Evan McMullen, the you know the conservative protest candidate, he got his highest margin in Utah. Yeah, he almost won of, Utah. of anywhere. Right. I mean, he, yeah. you know. He 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 got his you know he got his biggest market and so there is a you know there I mean the I don't think the Mormon community likes Donald Trump at all I mean because and here's the thing with Trump you know you you as a Republican you can say that uh, you know you agree with him on policies whether it be deregulation or tax cuts or even repealing Obamacare but you know can any Republican say that they you know they uh, they admire his character or that they that that they think you know he that Trump has a character that anyone should emulate or should serve as a role model for the country. I don't think I'd be surprised right. if you could get anyone who's not the most kind of you know uh, staunch Trump supporter to, to say that. You know, th- th- there's a real. I think there. I think some Republicans have a real you know issue with his character, and and I think that's the case in Utah. And I think that's that's I, sure. mainly why Jeff Flake and, and John McCain and uh, you know Mitt Romney, and I think even Susan Collins. I think that's why they find Trump so so distasteful is because they think his character is is uh, is just not up to snuff. Though there is one there's one voice that has we haven't heard from in a long time, and I bet you haven't heard this clip uh, that suddenly emerged re-emerged yesterday uh, to talk about her disappointment with John McCain and none other than. Sarah Palin, all the way from Wasilla, Alaska. Here she is yesterday. I was kind of surprised to be publicly um, disinvited to the to the uh, funeral. I think that that was an unnecessary step. They didn't have to embarrass me and embarrass others who, uh, and it wasn't just me. It was other um, good people in our campaign back in 2008 who were very, very loyal to Senator McCain and worked with him and for him for many years, and they weren't invited to the to the funeral. So that was all weird, you know. It's all I don't know. I hope I hope that doesn't happen to other people. It's unnecessary. It's you know, it's kind of a, a gut punch. There we are. Haven't heard from Sarah Palin for a long time. So. Yeah, you know, that's really true. I mean, Sarah Palin has really become irrelevant in many ways. I mean, she's just kind of a yeah. punchline from. The past, like Admiral Stockdale, or <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, she's just kind of this political curio that just you know you find yeah. on the shelf these days. I mean, she, she, I mean, she had a lot of support. I mean, at one point, she was a yeah. national celebrity, and it yeah. just kind of all frittered away. You know, yeah. she wasn't able to do anything with it. Um, you know, I think right. the thing I was always hoping that one day McCain would you know kind of really you know make his thoughts known on just you know in his memoir, didn't he sort of. Did he? I don't know. Regret. I mean, kind of, sort of. Right, I mean, not, he was a gentleman yeah. in that regard, so she didn't yeah. get invited to the funeral. But I mean, he never, you know, he never trashed her. I mean, he never, he no. never, he never right. kind of. I mean, you can only you can only speculate, and you know, some of game change. You know, of course, that but, you know, great book about the twenty two thousand eight uh, campaign. You know, gets into a little bit like sort of just the the I think the moments but, of disbelief on the McCain side when you know Palin would do this or that but, but he, course, he never he never he never really you you're know, right vented. no he didn't no uh, and of course Donald Trump was not invited to the funeral either okay so what are your uh, what are the senators telling you Democrats what are the Democratic senators particularly telling you uh, about Joe Biden their former colleague today you have well, a story on that in the yeah, Hill this I morning mean, the, the uh, what'd you, know, you find well the strongest quote you know 
maybe you can guess this, came from Christian Gillibrand, who's made, you know, the Me Too movement and, you know, sexual harassment kind of the centerpiece of her political persona. And, uh, you know, and, and you know, what she said to me was, you know, Lucy Flores felt demeaned and that's never okay. If Vice President decides, if Vice President Biden decides to run for president and something, this is something he's going to have to address directly with the American people. And then we asked, mm-hmm. there are a couple of reporters and we asked her, you know, various iterations of, well, should he not run? You know, do you believe him when he said, you know, in, in his statements? And she just kind of, you know, stuck to those talking points. And, um, the, you know, there were, you know, and there, and I guess uh, other people we've talked to have had, had variations of that response. Everyone is very careful, I think, is the bottom line. Um, Amy Klobuchar, you know, she said over the weekend that she has no reason not to believe Flores. Uh, um, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, who is the you know Democratic Central Campaign Committee chair, she's also from Nevada, where Flores is from. You know, she said, "Look, I believe the, I believe the uh, accuser." But that's, you know, that's kind of as far as they go. And so I think, I actually, I think Democrats are being very careful here because. Uh, you know, Biden is you know well out front out front in in the polls, and you know he may be the best chance to beat Donald Trump. And I think, as much as you know, Democrats like to, you know, form the circular firing mm-hmm. squad or shoot themselves in the foot. I think they realize maybe it's not the smartest to you know pile on to Biden here, whom everyone has a lot of affection for, um, and who has raised money for them and campaigned for them. You know, going back ten years or longer, so longer, right? Yeah. Well, at least the current crop. Current, sure, that's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, and no one remembers anything you did for more than ten years ago. I mean, it might as well not have happened. Like you know, so he, I mean, he's been, you know, he's he's been very helpful to the party. So God, you know, how ungrateful would it be, or how you know, how self destructive would it be to you know tear this guy down when he could be actually your best shot at winning? And um, you know, and I think it's there's also I think some question as to whether you know, Lucy Flores is being a little opportunistic here. I mean, there's some questions about her ties to the Sanders campaign. She was a surrogate for Sanders in 2016. She served on the board of Our Revolution, the advocacy group that spun out of the Sanders campaign. Uh, she, you know, you know, this is this this allegation all stems from you know Biden going out there to help her candidacy, and there are pictures of you know him like raising her arm as a champion. I mean, he, you know, he went out there to help her. And then, you know, she repays him, you know, five years later by dredging up this allegation that kind of, you know, comes out of nowhere. Why didn't it come out sooner? It just seems I think it I think it's it it smells opportunistic to people. And I think that's why they're being very cautious about piling on to Biden. But at the same time, recognizing the political environment, the me, you know, after the Me Too movement, which is if a woman says that something happened and she felt uncomfortable about it, you have to respect it. Listen respectfully, and you know, and you can't say I don't believe it or, or minimize it or dismiss it. You have to say, okay, you know, we we hear you, but at the same time, I don't think they're ready to kill Biden over it either. All right, as I say in my uh, column in the Hill this morning, I believe everything she says. I believe what he he she he did, what she says he did, and that mm-hmm. was wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think it disqualifies, as she says. Mm-hmm. I disagree with her that it disqualifies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden from running for for president. Uh, Alex, you got a, you got a lot going on here, man. We better let you get back to work. Okay. <laughs> uh, nail those. Don't let them escape you. I love the fact that you guys are trolling the halls, ready to uh, <laughs> you know challenge them on every issue. Absolutely. So thank you for coming in today. And don't forget, you can follow Alex and all of our good friends at the Hill at thehill.com. 
We'll say hello to Lauren Gambino next from The Guardian, who's been covering 2020 full-time. More coming up here on The Bill Press Show. Stay with us. This is The Bill Press Show. Tuesday, April 2nd. Can you believe it? Here we are, The Bill Press Show. Great to have you with us today with uh, lots and lots going on. Donald Trump doubling down on wanting to uh, close the border. Hasn't done it yet, but he did cut off aid to the three uh, Central American countries that probably need our aid the most if we're really going to stop the flow of people coming to the uh, southern border. Uh, And meanwhile, a whistleblower in the White House reporting that there are up to 25 people that um, their office turned down for security clearances because they had a lot of problems in their past that meant that maybe they shouldn't be working with the top security clearance in the White House. And in every one of those 25 cases, which reportedly include his daughter and his son-in-law and his national security advisor, John Bolton, Donald Trump overruled them and said, no, I don't care. Give them a security clearance. Um, Lots going on, lots to talk about. And 2020, meanwhile, is uh, really bubbling with um, uh, a good number of the candidates coming to Washington yesterday for the big We the People conference. Uh, They're reporting for us as well as The Guardian, uh, Lauren Gambino, who joins us in studio. Hey, Lauren, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Before we jump in ahead, Peter, I want to just check quickly on... Very, very quickly. Yeah, very, very quickly. We have a couple of comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, Shout out to Fred, who just wants to point out, uh, great guests today, as usual. Yeah, well... Very nice. That's Thank what we you, do, Fred. That's what we do. Thank and Fred, remember, you are one of our most important guests. That's all right. Our listeners and viewers around the country. Oh, that's right. And uh, I did the story about Burger King. Uh, they are testing this Impossible Foods burger, uh, which is a meatless burger. It's a burger patty made out of soy protein. I just hope Five Guys never does this. You know, they might. No. They no. might. Uh, no, I'm not please, saying I'm going to eat please. it. I mean, I don't eat red meat. Anyway, but I don't. I also don't like fake burgers. <laughs> so we had a couple of comments on that. Okay. Someone says, yes. uh, someone pointed out that, uh, hey, there hasn't been fat any meat in fast food burgers for decades, <laughs> <laughs> which is a very fair that, point. That is a fair point. Yeah, right. always find us on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. Uh, again, for me, it's like the driverless car. I don't want anything to do with the meatless <laughs> burger or the driverless car. Fair I'm enough. not going to drive my driverless car to the drive-in window to get a meatless burger. (laughs) (laughs) Now, so uh, what was the scene at We the People yesterday? Yeah, it was um, really energized. You could tell, I think, because it was organized by a lot of liberal groups who were feeling pretty high coming in off the 2018 campaign. uh, They they should. They should. Yes. So there's a lot of energy. Um, there was definitely a concerted effort on pushing them around certain issues. Um, electoral college, abolishing the electoral college came up a lot. Uh, reforms to the Supreme Court. There was a sort of focus on uh, democratic reforms. Um, but yeah, people were really excited. I mean, this was definitely a sort of Bernie Warren wing of the party. So they got the biggest reception, I would they? say, the by two, far. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, Bernie, you know, standing... Standing ovation, applause, chants. Warren, I think they really warmed up to her, especially as she started talking about her ideas. Uh, she got a lot of applause for that. Um, Beto O'Rourke was there. He, you know, he kind of, I think, was walking into a harder environment. There was definitely some some skeptics in the audience. Really? Huh? Yeah, I thought so. They I don't mean, consider they... him left enough. 
I think that's it. I think there's a lot of skepticism that's been raised, especially um, among people who support Bernie. Um, I think they are really skeptical of his candidacy. Um, and they I think they I think some, you know, some advisors see overlap and possibly both appealing to young people. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I think, you know, from the from that, there's some some skepticism among Bernie voters. But but I think he, too, he eventually sort of warmed them up, especially he was pretty definitive on calling for the or. Well, he said he would abolish the Electoral College and then also yeah. supported states doing that individually. Um, but that worked. Um, I I wasn't there myself, but I did read that um, the one who sort of broke ranks a little bit was Bernie himself on the uh, expanding the Supreme Court. He made a point which I yeah. have made, and I must admit I haven't talked to him about it, that if we do this, uh, saying, okay, we win in 2020, we're going to put two more people in the Supreme Court to balance it out, that in the future a Republican president would do the same thing and you know just keep adding to the court, which is not – and Bernie talked about – either term limits or rotating people in and out of the Supreme Court so it's not always the same nine by rotating because I think um, term limits would require a constitutional amendment, but right. you could rotate them in and out, which puts some down to the appeals court and other people move up. But anyhow, Bernie said, let's slow down on that one issue, which uh, probably took a lot of guts in front of that crowd to say so. Yeah, uh, he was... It was interesting because the way the questions were asked were um, extremely pointed. And so he wasn't, you know, he wasn't sort of smacking down an idea that had been asked of him. Yeah. Uh, so he, he, there wasn't a huge, you know, there, he wasn't booed or anything. No, yeah. it, but especially because he did come out with his own idea. Like you said, the rotating right. the judges um, onto the court for new blood, he said. Um, and he seemed to back that idea. But I think overall it points to how serious the Democratic Party is about somehow reforming mm -hmm. the Supreme Court. Uh, among the people who were there, um, you haven't mentioned him yet, but uh, Cory Booker, uh, an impassioned point um, with um, it's time, uh, he says, to, uh, to dream again. It's time for us to dream again of a nation that every child has a great public school to go to. It's time for us to dream again that every family has health care, that it's universal for all. It's time for us to dream again that work has dignity and all can retire with security. It's time for us to dream again. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm sure for that crowd, he had a lot of convincing to do, right? That yes, you can trust me. I'm a real progressive. He did, and um, but you also saw people warm to him. I mean, the, you know, in his mm -hmm. remarks, he got people really worked up, and they were applauding. I mean, that's how he—that's what he's good at. You he know, is you good keep at hearing that. him. He's, he's a great, great in front of a retail crowd. politician, or you know, and this was more—it wasn't an intimate gathering by mm -hmm. by any stretch, but still, he was you know in this theater with them, and he. He, I, I think he kind of sort of won them over, which is the hard part for a lot of Democrats because they keep being won over yeah. by all these candidates uh, or keep seeing something they like in another candidate. Um, oh, I know. Yeah. There's a, big, a whole smorgasbord of, of choices there for, for Democrats, which I think is great. And, uh, um, and many of them are attractive in their own way. You know, Cory Booker looking for his lane. Somebody else is trying to break through, of course. Uh, Julian Castro, who told... Yes. You were there. Um, the funny story of um, he was driving through the <laughs> the drive-through window at a Panda Express <laughs> when his cell phone starts to uh, right. to go off. And here he tells the story. You know how the phone sometimes it says unknown caller or blocked. It said private. 
So if you ever get a call that says private, answer the phone. Uh, I did, and I ended up serving two and a half years as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, he answered the phone as Barack Obama saying, "I want you to be my HUD's, <laughs> my HUD secretary." I think he's one of those people that every time someone sees them, they like him. Um, it's just they. He, uh, he's not getting as much attention. You know, we're seeing, for example, Mayor Pete take off. Pete yeah, Buttigieg yeah. taking off, and Castro really hasn't had that moment yet. But every time people see him, they like him. He was get. I saw online a lot of people were tweeting, oh, you know, where has Castro been? We, he's great. And, you know, he is liberal on certain issues. He can be to the left on, you know, he was kind of first out of the gate on reparations mm-hmm. uh, or one of the first candidates on reparations. Um, so he... He's a really interesting candidate, and I wonder, you know, what when his moment will come or if he catches fire. But certainly, people really like him when they see him and they hear him. You know, it's interesting. Uh, so often in the primary, and I've heard this said about several people who are running this year. Well, they're really running for vice president, right. or they're really running as uh, to be a cabinet secretary. He's already been there, right? <laughs> right. That's <laughs> yeah, the problem so. for him. But I also think. <laughs> I also think with this crop, that might be true and certainly could make maybe the case for Mayor P. But, you know, I mean, Donald Trump is president. And that's what they keep saying. You know, I know. anything yeah. can happen. Exactly. And, um, so I think that a good chunk of them are running to be president. And they think, you know, however slim or narrow, they do have a shot at it. Because after all, anything can happen is what we learned in 2016. Just one other voice from yesterday, picking up on the big story uh, yesterday in the, that we learned yesterday in the news and it's the lead story this morning about this um, controversy now over security clearances at yes. the White House where the president has overruled the personnel office saying, you know, I don't care if they got personnel problems or financial conflicts or foreign entanglements, you know, I want them to work for me. So just uh, give us, even though the FBI and the security office said no, they don't qualify. The president said, no, give him a national security clearance. That was true with Rob Porter, his his, his cabinet right. secretary, um, with Jared Kushner, and reportedly with Ivanka Trump and even John Bolton. And the one who picked up on that yesterday, I thought made a good point, was Elizabeth Warren, again, yes. showing uh, how good she is in front of a crowd. We woke up this morning to find out that at least 25 people in this administration had been denied security clearances. Yeah, why? Oh, because they had ties to foreign governments, because uh, they had conflicts of interest, because they had financial problems that made them vulnerable. And what does the President of the United States do? Instead of saying, hey, whoa, my responsibility is to watch out for the American people, no. These are friends. These are people with money and with connections. And the answer was, just ram them on through. You know... The Trump administration is a walking, talking, living, breathing threat to national security. And we just have to call it out. There she goes. So she's sort of competing with Bernie in front of that crowd, right? I guess who can. Yeah. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of overlap with those two. But I think when you see them, they're very different. They're different stylistically. They're different. I mean, Bernie got up there and gave, you know, an abbreviated version of a stump speech. And you saw that she was quite interactive. She, you know, brought in the news of the day. She tied that to her broader theme. She talked about national security, which is something, you know, candidates Mm -hmm. on the left are kind of always hit for. Um, And, you know, she I think what's smart about how she's sort of framing all of this is this like idea of 
running against the Trump administration's, you know, culture of corruption. They, you know, help their cronies or, you know, they, it's like yeah. this crony uh, administration. They help their friends and family. They've profited off the the presidency. So I think the idea, you know, that's probably a stronger case for Democrats to make going into 2020 than focusing on Russia or the Mueller report as, you know, as we're seeing. So it's focusing on this idea of actually he promised to drain the swamp and he hasn't. He's only made it swampier. Here's what we would do. Um, so I think she's tapping into that, which is very smart. It's something Democrats ran on and, you know, not as, as high profile as healthcare mm-hmm. in 2018, but they did run on this idea of cleaning up Washington and it seemed to sell pretty well. So she's tapping into that in, in, a, in a way that I feel like is more um, organic than how Bernie's doing it. You know, Bernie's sort of stuck with his his stump speech. We, we heard it in 2016. We're hearing it again. Yeah. There's not, you know, he's brought in a bit of his biography, but he hasn't totally updated it, we haven't gotten, you know, new, fresh ideas from him yet. I mean, his, yeah. you know, his team More of the fresh coming. ideas are coming from her. Yeah. Well, I have, to, I have to answer this question because, you know, we talk about the front runners and you look at all the polling, right? It's Bernie, Biden, who's not in yet, uh, Beto, Kamala Harris. A lot of them are usually up in, in the in the top, uh, at the top of these polls. And Elizabeth Warren rarely is. And I can't figure out why. Because I think she is running an excellent campaign, aside from the problems that she had, obviously, with her heritage. Uh, but she is the, I think the 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 candidate candidate that is throwing out the biggest ideas and the most new uh, ideas, and yet she's not polling super well. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I think in terms of the ideas, you know, I think she's showing that there is still a lot of innovation to be hap- to happen on the left. It's like, you know, Bernie might have set the bar, so to speak, mm-hmm. in 2016, but that doesn't mean you don't have to keep throwing out these ideas and keep having, you know, fresh um, fresh policy pl- uh, proposals. So I think she's, <laughs> she's in a way now kind of setting the bar for the other candidates. She's, these ideas are, are new and innovative and, and interesting. Um, but as far as catching fire, I mean, especially in this primary, it's so hard. You know, it's, it's hard to, to pick and see what will catch fire. I, I keep coming back to a, a, the Bernie factor for her. Yeah. Um, you know, she didn't run 2016, so he seized the left, yeah. really, the the, uh, the progressive support. He still got it. He's maintained yes. it. And That's very clear. Uh, we talked about this yesterday, Peter. I think her greatest challenge is to say. Why me over Bernie? Right. Then it's got to be why someone as far left as me over a Joe Biden, right? Or um, a Kamala Harris even, or an Amy Klobuchar, right? But first, I think her first challenge is why that you got to choose between right. Bernie and Elizabeth Warren for that lane, for that wing of the party. But, and, and, um, and that's tougher for her because Bernie is just, in a sense, running on his success from 2016. Right. And uh, and that's that's and he's bringing in. I'm, I don't mean to say it's all, all has been. He's bringing in new people too. Yeah, you know? yeah, right. No, no. And he is trying but, to update his campaign for sure. But I think there's a people forget that she, in a way, paved paved the way for his 2016. Absolutely. Run. And and uh, you know, I've said it before. I think she should have run in 2016, and and I think she made a mistake by by not running then. Um, so. One other, one factor. Um, so we're talking, which is great. We're talking about ideas, people ide- with ideas, which are the most important factor. 
We also always look at how much money they're able to raise. Yes. So we've seen just two candidates. So the first quarter is over. Um, we've seen two candidates so far report what they did in the first quarter. Both impressive. Pete Buttigieg, $7 million for somebody most people never heard of and still can't pronounce his name. Yeah. Uh, from that, so the total is impressive. Also, 158,550 donors. Uh, average contribution, $36.35. Right down so to the So certainly <laughs> that qualifies him for the debates, and it makes him a player, doesn't it? It definitely makes him a player. He can, you know, he can afford to staff up and sort of build out his very thin operation at the moment. I think he had 20 people the last time I spoke to him. Um, so, yeah, they can definitely be a real player. And, you know, with the attention he's receiving, sometimes that's just the best factor you can get. He's getting all this, you know, all the positive press, more or less. And, um, you know, he kind of came out of the gate uh, with, court packing he was one of the first to really right. get on board mm -hmm. with that and still is only the only candidate saying definitively yes we should add more people to the court um and so yeah he's sort of he's got a, he's got a niche right no he's he, he has a moment as you say that his um achilles heel if you will is that while he was did doing doing very well in his tv appearances he didn't have any structure in iowa didn't have any structure in south carolina didn't have any structure nationwide with $7 million, you can start putting some people in place to build your ground game in those states, which is essential. Um, and then the second one to come out of the slot was uh, with their financial report is uh, Kamala Harris, who reported raising $12 million. Uh, very impressive again. Uh, a ha one half of that was raised online. Uh, the online average contribution was $28, sort of Bernie Sanders territory. <laughs> The average contribution overall was $55. Um, and so, again, major player. Yeah, definitely a major player. I think she obviously should not be underestimated. <laughs> we saw that with her crowd sizes and her at her launch in, in Oakland. And um, we continue to see that in her poll numbers. She's up there. She's always, you know, in the top four or five candidates. Mm -hmm. um, and that's impressive because she is obviously a well-known figure in Washington and in California where she's from but but aside from that she's not as well known across the country so you know that's her challenge is when she's competing against people who are more um, you know she's got Biden and, and Bernie in front of her who have high name recognition um, Beto to a degree is national you know has some uh, more of a national platform because of his Texas run um, so yeah that's her challenge to get out there make sure people know who she is um, her kind of her biography, I'd say, probably distinguishes her in a way um, that you know that I guess in a way that makes it easier um, for her to sort of right. distinguish the, herself from Bernie and Biden. She's uh, younger. She's the person, of course, who and we haven't heard yet from Beto O'Rourke and Bernie Sanders, both of whom are expected to do more than twelve. We'll see. Um, but Beto uh, actually beat out Bernie in the first. Overnight, yeah, by six point one million, and Bernie was five point nine. Yeah. Both of those um, showing that they've they've really developed the donor base. Bernie from twenty sixteen, and better work from uh, from the uh, Senate Senate campaign. Yes, right. yeah. Um, so um, the first debate coming up in June, which is going to be extremely interesting. 
And I think very, very important because for most Americans, it'll be the first time they've had a chance to see these candidates and they're going to see them all as long as they meet that threshold, which we've talked about so often with the DCCC of 1% in at least three public opinion polls and then 20,000, no, wait a minute. Yeah, at least 20,000 donors in... It was 65,000 65, individual in, donors in all from the 20 states. states. Or, right. From, yeah, right. 65,000 donors. <laughs> they didn't give a dollar figure that you have to reach. We asked right. them about that. But at least 65,000 different donors uh, in 20 different states. And so Buttigieg is there. You know, um, I think Andrew Yang is there too, right? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah. He's was there. he there yesterday? He was not there yesterday, no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, also an interesting guy pushing you know singular progressive policy, so he can yeah. push the party. No, absolutely. God, what an exciting time <laughs> to be covering politics. Uh, hey, Lauren, thanks for coming in so much. You can follow Lauren at The Guardian, theguardian.com. Okay, Equal Pay Day. Make it a great day, folks. Uh, Tuesday is all of yours. Come back and see us again tomorrow. This we'll be looking for is you. the Bill Press Show.